Amen. Thank you, Jessica. Grateful for your gifts and talents. It's nice to have you back. Well, good morning, everybody. I don't know about you, but I had to put my shorts back in the drawer this week. It got cold again. Here it is in January. But wow, did I love that warmer weather. Saved all kinds of firewood. I don't think I had a fire for a week, and that's how we heat. So, praise the Lord for that. But we're nice and warm in here this morning, and hopefully not too warm. Well, back in um, 2010, I began the book of Genesis. It's one of the books that we have studied here. And that is the book of beginnings. And now in 2023, I want to begin the book of Revelation. And that is the book of how things end. So we, God reveals how things begin. And by His grace and generosity, He reveals how things will end. And you can turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Uh, we won't get very far this morning because this is just introduction. It's a kind of book um, that you just have to introduce because it's strange. It's weird. We need to look at a few things. But the very first, the beginning of how John introduces this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or the revelation, yeah, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book was written by the Apostle John, uh, most scholars believe, 95-96 A.D. John was an apostle, and during this time, in the first century, he, it is believed that, well, he, he's on the island of Patmos. And he is in exile. He is being persecuted for his belief in Christ. And so this island actually is a, one of the smallest islands in the Aegean Sea. And he was exiled there. Today, there's a population. It's a real island. The Bible is real. And places it talks about are real and the people are real. It's a little island and the population uh, to this day is about 3,000 people living on that island. And it is an island that some Christians go to for a Christian pilgrimage. Like some Christians pilgrim to Bethlehem and other famous Christian sites. So if you want to go there and check it out, please let me know what you find. Let me know if it's worth the visit. <clears throat> By the way, this is uh, uh, in western, in the Aegean Sea, but mo the churches that the Apostle John writes to are in modern-day Turkey. So it's just to the left of modern-day Turkey. This book is addressed to seven real churches. These churches that we will look at in a few weeks from now, at probably about five sermons from now, we'll start looking at uh, the churches that Jesus addresses. They're real churches in modern-day Turkey. And he begins to reveal himself to these churches. And he will commend some of these churches. He will criticize some of these churches. And he will comfort some of these churches. Just as we were reminded this morning in Sunday school in 2 Timothy 3.16. That's what God's word does. It, it teaches us. It, it rebukes us. It corrects us. It trains us in righteousness. And so Jesus is speaking to his churches. To his people there. The thing that makes this book so unique and different is that much of it is revealed or spoken. The message is, is delivered in symbolic language. And symbolic language is, is difficult to navigate. So we're going to be looking at this symbolic, uh, this symbolic 
language. We're going to do our best to work our way through it. But it's apocryphal writings. And so it's very, very, it's intended to be very vivid and to be very shocking. It's intended, it's, it's a genre of literature that is intended to uh, invoke in you something that other forms of literature would not invoke. So it's, it's, it has a shock value, if you will. That's kind of the whole purpose of it. I like the summary that my ESV study Bible offered of this book. The church is depicted under great distress, but is assured of the final triumph of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. We sang that this morning. Bringing to an end the rebellion of humanity and ushering in a new heaven and a new earth where God himself will reign forever and ever. So that's, that's kind of just a great summary of the book. There's a lot of things in this book that we will scratch our heads about, I'm sure. But the overall plan or message is unmistakable. And that is there are a, there, there's a battle that rages. Evil is real. Good is real. The devil is real. God is real. We know evil and good and the struggle and the tension in our own hearts. These things are real. And in the end, they will, they will butt heads. There's a battle that, was, that will rage. God comforts His church. God will protect His people during these times. But not in a way, such a way that we are immune to the evils and the persecutions of the world. We are very much the Christian message and the Christian people are very much a people that will suffer. And we will suffer the scrapes and the bruises because we live in a broken world. And sometimes we are the brunt of the scrapes and the bruises. We will receive the beatings because of our faith in Christ. And so Christ is, is tenderly uh, comforting His people during this time. And we will get to look at all of that in these words. And in this book, I remember that um, my New Testament professor in college summarized the book of Revelation as this, and I've said this before, and that's our, our side wins. Because in the, in the end, God wins. And all the evil and all the brokenness and all the rebellion will absolutely be subdued by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We won't examine these in detail until next week, but I do want to at least read the first three verses of this book to get our heads into it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Beautiful words. So, um, why the book of Revelation? Why did I land on this book? It's been on the back burner for a long time for me. But let me just assure you that I'm not reading the... Revelation in a state of panic because I read a certain article or I listened to a certain podcast or what's happening in the houses of Congress and the halls of, of the White House and so forth. There's no document, nothing that some politician signed. So there's nothing imminent or threatening to me that evoked my desire to, oh my, to, to conclude, this is it. 
after reading that article or hearing that news podcast or whatever, this is it. I need to get my head into end times because we are in it and our days are very short. It wasn't anything like that. I think that uh, to a degree, and I want to talk about this a little bit, but everybody or every Christian generation since Jesus brought it up in Matthew 24 has been pretty determined that they are living in the end times. So every, every generation, when you look at the signs that Christ gave as indicators of the end time, almost every generation believes they are in the end times. And so, wouldn't surprise me. I, our generation, you, I, there's not a week that goes by that I don't hear something about the end times. We're living in the end times. But if you think about the descriptions that Jesus gives, rumors of wars, famines, natural disasters, and people's hearts growing cold against God, when was there ever a time that there weren't rumors of wars in this world? Or famines or natural disasters. Now there are times where it is more tumultuous than others, times where there is peace and so forth, but there, I think that, in other words, this could be described or can be describing just about any Age. There are people who actually try to look at history and, and keep count of all the earthquakes and, and um, rumors of wars and wars and different things just to try to see, are we there yet? Are we any more uh, closer to the end times uh, than, than we think? So there's people that really keep a close eye on this. But I do want to say that, by the way, Jesus' remedy to preparing for the end times is not researching the book of Revelation. Jesus' remedy to the end times is to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not to like wait as long as you can and then get your head into the book of Revelation so you can get in just in the nick of time because you read the signs right. That is not the remedy. The remedy is Today is the day of salvation. We don't know exactly when the Lord is coming. And how gracious of Jesus to let us know you need to be prepared on that basis. Not on, it's, not, it's our knowledge of God that will get us into the kingdom of God, knowing God rightly, not our knowledge of eschatology. So that is the remedy that Jesus gives us when he talks about that. Uh, I don't know if we are in the end of the end of the end times or not today, but I know that every day is one day closer. Right? Every day. So there's this tension, and I think that throughout the generations, Christians have felt this tension, like something's got to give. There's too much air in this balloon, it's going to pop. Something's going to explode. And I think it's right for us to, to carry that anticipation and expectation, because the world's an evil place, and we should want evil uh, to be put in its place. We should want to witness the justice of God. We should want and long for the promises of God to be fulfilled before our very eyes. So it's, it's fine to be, to be um, in that state of anticipation. I have no problem with that. I long for the coming of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. We will read that in this book. But what the end times is not a call for, and unfortunately it's something that I see all too much, is Christian panic. There, there are well-meaning ministries and messages and everything about the end times 
that induce Christian panic. Let me just read a few New Testament passages. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths as for you. So while the end times is happening, this is going to happen, but as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your, manis- your ministry. So he doesn't say, look, it's going to get terrible. You need to panic. You need to hide in a cave or something like that. Be self-controlled. This, this, hap- this is going to happen in your world. You're a, you're a disciple of Christ. So what do you do when conditions get bad? You follow Him. You seek Him. You press on. You show up for work. You show up for worship. You sing your praise songs. You do your Bible studies. You be a part of the body of Christ. You just keep keeping on with what Jesus established while He was here on earth. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through... I'm not going to read all 12 verses or paraphrase a few things, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Again, when is that not taking place? I've, I've never known a time where you cannot you cannot apply that to a, a given age. And then in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be perse- persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, so that's all going to happen all around you. So what do we do? Panic? Continue in what you've learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. And the scripture that was quoted this morning, 2 Timothy 3.16, God's Word, all scriptures God breathed and useful for, for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may fully be equipped or may be fully equipped. And so what do we do as we witness things go, say, from, from bad to even worse? Do we throw up our arms? Do we give up? Do we get discouraged? What does Scripture inform us to do? Keep pressing on in the faith. Keep learning the things of God. Keep obeying the Word of God. Grasping, understanding, pushing in the things of God. Not spaz out. And so many believers today, it's sad to see so many people spaz out over every little headline or article that we read when we see things say, go from bad to worse. We have the Word of God. The Word of God will, complete, will continue to complete us. Will continue to sanctify us. Will continue to comfort us. Will continue to lead us and guide us when we might feel like we don't know what's going on in the world. Where is all this going to end? Or how is it going to pan out from month to month or week to week? So while the world gets worse, we're not to hang our head 
in hopelessness, like many Western Christians have a tendency to do, as if Satan landed the final blow, that's it, the church is doomed. Might as well just pack up and go home. So why this book? It's not because I'm in panic. Uh, Another reason, um, so so if it's not because we're supposed to spaz out or panic, then why are we going to look at this book? Because I want to exalt God. More than I, than I have been. I want to edify the saints. I want us to be encouraged by God's word. And evangelize the lost. That's why we're looking at this book. Just to get a better grasp. A firmer, firmer grip, uh, grip. On what's going on. It's another opportunity to dig deeper. To become wiser. To become more complete. complete and better equipped. Now for a lesser more personal reason. Of why I'm studying this book. Is because. Uh. Frankly, I've been avoiding it. I have avoided this book. It's been on my back burner for many, many years. And I start thinking, this is what I, maybe I should do this. And I've started to get the feeling that we should look at Revelation. And I've just been avoiding it because it is a hard book. It's a strange book. It's a, we're, we're reading about dreams and visions. Have you ever had a dream or a vision? Even just a dream. Just say a dream. What did you dream last night? Don't tell me. It's probably weird. I won't understand it in dreams like you start here and next thing you know you're in this other place and people you don't even know are in your dream and it's just strange. And here we are uh, sucked into this, pushed into this because we want to know God. There's a message in all of this strange stuff and all of this weirdness. So even though it's been on my radar, I have just absolutely avoided it. I remember in Bible college when we looked at it and and, and studied it and I was like, I don't, what's the use? Because there's different interpretations and nobody agrees on what all this stuff means. Even the greatest minds in the world that time, they don't agree on what this means. So I would just as soon um, study the books that I I can get a better grip on. So it's just time. It's time I can't push it away or avoid it because it's God's word and I need to hear it. So why would I want to push that away? So I just think it's time for us to roll up our sleeves to hear God's voice, to hear it in in God's way, and that includes with God's symbols, visions, and images. It will bless us just like the other 65 books of the Bible. It's inspired. It will have that uh, effect on us. And what I hope it does is give us in our day and age, more of a kingdom-mindedness. This is God bringing John up into the heavens through, through these visions and this experience. He's bringing him up so he can look down. So all of what we're going to read about is from heaven's perspective. And a lot of times we get caught up with just what we see from left to right and, and, and forward and behind. And there's so much happening from God's heavenly perspective. So I want us to be more kingdom, have a, a, a greater kingdom mindset, not be so myopic and just see things from our perspective and how far we can see in front of us. I think it's a, it's a bad habit for Western Christians and Americans in particular. We have a, a habit of thinking that uh, anything that happens in, Amer- in America affects the worldwide church. And if America falls or if Congress signs something, then there goes the church. And that is not the universal church. 
God is way busier than just what we see and we read in, in, in the news and online and these things. We can't look at the Bible through an American perspective only. I love America. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. It is, a, it is in my opinion, the greatest nation in the earth. But America is not the church. It had different beginnings. It's going to have a different end than the church. And it just is not as powerful as we have to think. And a lot of times we, we see a president signing something into law in the White House as if it's more powerful than the Word of God. There's nothing more powerful than the Word of God. God has these presidents and their pens in His hands and all the politicians. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it means that God is in control. And that is the God that we worship and the God that we serve. So I, I want us to try to get, that, get rid of that bad habit that we have. I'm not saying that things aren't getting worse. I'm not saying that being mocked or being fired for your faith is, is a good thing or is fun. It's not at all. But what I am saying is that America is not the church. And God is the one that protects his people. God is the one that has a plan for his people. He has policies that are more important, that are more powerful than the policies that are being written into or out of law in our existence. The only thing, no matter how bad times get, and right now, they are not that bad for Christians. All right? Our worst enemy in these United States of America. It's ourselves. Because I have, I am my own worst enemy. There is no government law that keeps me from coming to church. There is no government law that keeps me from worshiping from the bottom of my heart. There's no government law that says I can't walk across the street and minister to my labor, neighbor or love my neighbor like Scripture tells me to do. There is nothing binding me from getting as close to God as I want to be but myself. So that is the mindset I want us to come at as we look at these verses. I think about <clears throat> you know, COVID and how I heard so many people complain about the government's keeping me from going to church. Well, the churches are open, but where are all the people? See, the churches have not recuperated the members that left because of government, uh, COVID and complained so much that they were having to be kept out of church. Well, now there's no restraint in that area. So we want to look at this from a perspective that we can learn from it. God's voice will speak into our hearts, and I think it's time. I think it's time for a new covenant to hear God's voice in God's way with God's book of the Revelation. So that's why Revelation. Second thing I want to talk about is the genre of literature. So you know, you read books, you have you have certain move, kinds of movies you like. You might, you might like documentaries or romances or whatever. There's different kinds of literature you know. It's prose and poetry and, and wisdom literature. Well, this is apocalyptic. And apocalyptic is designed to be written again with symbols and visions a certain way so you can't approach it in the wrong way or you'll never understand what God is trying to say. And we approach every book of the Bible this way. What is, what is the, the genre of literature? How is it being written? And then we take it to understand it 
in that way. We don't understand or read all texts in the same way. You know, there's parables. You're not supposed to take parables literally, but there's powerful lessons in them. There's psalms. Uh, there's, there's proverbs or the books of wisdom. They all have a different aim and an, and, and intent, and so they're written in that way. Some are written to provoke us to think about things and meditate on things. So we have to read it for what it is. So in Leviticus, you, you have case law. In Leviticus, it says if you own a bull and it's wild and you know it's dangerous and you know it's deadly and you were negligent and you let that bull roam and it killed somebody, then you are responsible to, play, to pay significant compensation. That's the law. So you don't read that and say, ah, it's just a parable. I don't have to pay anybody anything. That's just, just there's a, another lesson in here that we can learn about it. So it matters how we approach things. For, for the most part, I think that interpretation is intuitive, and that is when you pick up the paper, you know the difference between the editorials and the comics, I hope. I think you do. But there's a difference. And you don't read the comic pages like you would read the editorial. So we have to know what we're looking at so that we can draw the right conclusions. Now, uh, a confession of absolute foolishness. Kind of a shame to share this with you, but it's true and it falls right into line about you have to understand the purpose of the literature. <clears throat> so as somewhat new to the area, when we move back... I, uh, I've never really read the papers a whole lot, but I finally subscribed to the Courier Record. And um, I would just read it at my leisure from here to there. And I, I got one uh, copy that uh, had some really, really interesting articles on the first page. And um, I found out, I was just absolutely amazed at what I was reading in this paper. Uh, Fort Pickett was filming... The, uh, the Hollywood was filming a, a movie at Fort Pickett that starred Clint Eastwood so we might see him walking around town of Blackstone. I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm getting pumped. Wow! And then um, it also said many things. This one, that's just the front page, one of the things it said that was that there was somebody uh, that had a, a list a list, they had accumulated a, a factual list of all of the husbands that were cheating on their wives. And that they were going to release this list, they were going to hold it to give husbands a few weeks to get their affairs in order. And, and then they were going to release this. And I'm reading this and I'm like, our county's going to be shaken. I mean, what? what? So anyway, um, there was a few other things in there. And I happened to mention it to Corky, and uh, you probably don't even remember this, but I happened to remember to, to mention it to Corky, like, yeah, I think we might see Clint Eastwood in town. He's like, uh, that's the April Fool's edition. <laughs> and you're a fool. Uh, boy, he was, he was actually kind of let me down easy there. But um, <clears throat> so what I thought was going to be disastrous, was actually innocent fun. It was harmless as long as you knew how to read it. And I did not read it in the right way. We have to know how to take it so we know how to react properly. 
So what is the genre or what's the literature that we're looking in here? There's three things. Basically, it's, it's written as an epistle, part of it, just like we've written. We've studied many, many epistles or letters. So uh, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's how the letters go out. And they're, they're written. There's the introduction there. It's also prophecy or prophetic, Revelation 10 or 11, 10, 11. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And then, of course, it is primarily apocalyptic. So we're most familiar with straightforward letters. Feel very home in those epistles. Feel at home there. And prophecy, I would say, pretty competent at. We're, we're used to hearing prophecy. But when it comes to apoc- apocalyptic writings, uh, clumsy. Maybe you're not, but I am very clumsy when it comes to these kind of writings. I am not familiar with them at all, dreams and visions and so forth. Apocalypse is the Greek word for revelation. It literally means like pulling the top off or, or pulling the curt back, curtain back. And so what God does in this book is He pulls the curtain back to reveal the things that are, the things that have been, the things that are, and the things to come. We get a glimpse of these things. And as uncommon as it is for us, it was not so uncommon in, for the first century church. It was a common way to write about things. So they would be way more familiar with it than we are. It's very strange because it has different properties for us. Uh, it's sloppy, it's fuzzy, you can't nail it down. You, you're, you're trying to understand it, and do I take this literally or not? And then you decide, well, I'm going to take this literally, and then you read the next verse, and you think, well, that didn't work. And so it's just, it's just loose. It's hard to understand there. That's why interpreters do not agree. Some of the greatest Bible scholars, theologians, do not agree on what this book is actually saying, other than the big picture, of course, the battle of good and evil and the end and the new heavens and the, the new earth, but the visions and the symbols, there's disagreement there. Early church would have made better sense of it. So some of you have wondered about why does, say for instance, there are other Bibles other than our Bible that have more books in them, more than 66, and they will include apocryphal books. A Catholic Bible includes apocryphal books, and these were books that were written anywhere from 200 B.C. to 150 A.D. It was a, a popular thing to do. Perhaps you've heard some of these books. Uh, you have uh, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees. These are apocryphal books. Uh, First Enoch, the Book of Jubilee, the Apocalypse, Apocalypse of Abraham, and so forth. So these kind of writings were passed around. They would have been more familiar with that. Uh, they would have known very simply that horns represent kings. You know, horns on some kind of beast in that era represented, it was a symbol for kings and kingdoms. That would be a no-brainer for them. And um, also, apocalyptic writing is, you will find it's, it's either or. It's, it's hot or cold. There's no in-between. Now, we're used to a lot of the books of the Bible kind of giving us in-between or, 
or mixed messages in the sense of how am I supposed to take this? So, for instance, you have in Genesis, God chooses Abraham to follow after him, and he, he says in, in, one of, in an area in this story that I've chosen you and so that you will pass my ways down to your children. You know, Abraham's a liar, and all of his children learn how to lie. And so what, what do we do with that? Like, so do we be like Abraham or not, and in what ways? You have, so then you have like King David, who was a, a murderer, adulterer, and a polygamist of all things. And, but he's a man of, after God's own heart. So do I follow after him or not? You know, like it's, things are not as clear cut. In Revelation, it is clear cut. You are good or you are bad. There are those that follow Satan and there are those who are gods. It's just that simple. You are in or out. It is either or kind of book. It's just that way and we will get to see how that goes. So then I want to just kind of close with the different interpretations. And this is going to be a very quick summary. I don't want to put you to sleep with it. It's the kind of thing... And when I say brief, I mean brief. Like I'm just going to give you a little idea of why there is disagreement on the book of Revelation. Why do people draw different conclusions? So there's four different approaches. The first is preterism. And that is, they'll look at the book of Revelation and they see it as describing events that have already taken place. So all of what we're about to read is in the past. And it made perfect sense because it's, you know, the beasts and, and the Antichrist and all the persecution. Well, there was persecution in that day. And that through Nero and, and Roman emperors, but through Nero. And then also the, it's describing um, the, the fall of the Babylon the Great is the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That really happened. And so they're describing actual events. And we, we, can, uh, we can glean principles and useful things out of it, but it's not, none of this is going to happen in our day or in the future. So things are in the past. So the second view is the historicist or historicism view. This view looks at the book of Revelation as describing different important eras, eras of the church from the days of Christ until the very end. So when there's big shifts or big things that happen... They look at the descriptions of the battles and the persecutions of, well, that happened when the Turks invaded. Or, or this, this happened, so you have, um, you look at history and you, and you fit it into the descriptions. So this was very popular during the days of the Reformation. They read Revelation and they say, well, everybody knows who the, the Antichrist is and the great whore, it's the Catholic Church. That's what it is. And they're persecuting us and blood is being spilled. And countless lives are being taken. So they just look at different errors, like the, the, the Turkish invasion and so forth, of history, and they say it's all unfolding in that way. And then we have the futuristic or futurism. That's probably what most of you are more or most familiar with because all of these views actually had times of popularity. They were very popular and then they'd phase out. Well, actually futurism is, is already phasing out, but you're probably more familiar with that so they look at the book of revelation and they say oh this is describing the things things to come god is telling us what is going to come and this particular view will tries to take th- 
things as literal as possible unless you absolutely can't take it literal. And so they, they will say, they will even name people. Uh, the, sim, the numbers and so forth are, are not that symbolic. So for instance, the uh, seven years of tribulation, seven is symbolic for a number of completion. They say, no, this is actual seven literal, literal years like we know seven years. And there's going to be seven years of tribulation in the church. This is all in the future. This is not in our day. They take the thousand-year reign of Christ as absolutely literal. Uh, Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem is going to come down. Christ is going to have set up a literal throne. He's going to sit on it like, I was, like you're sitting on that seat. And He's going to reign the earth for a thousand years. It's literal. And so they try to take these things and, and name people in places uh, as, as, um, as often as they can, but it's all going to happen in the future. So when you get to um, places like, just to give you an example, Romans 11, five, uh, Romans, Revelation 11.5 says, and this is talking about the two witnesses. Uh, if anyone would harm them, these two witnesses that, that God will send to the earth, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. So I ha- I'm reading accounts where people are taking this literally. You don't want to mess with the two witnesses when God sends them because they'll be fire-breathing people that will scorch you. Now this is taken literally. Um, so, you know, if one of the reasons I've been avoiding this book is because when you... St- you choose your system and you try to be consistent from front to back. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So, you know, you got, we're going to have to make some decisions about these kind of things. Is it, how much of it is literal? Uh, you know, you have the Left Behind series that was very popular. Some of you may have that on your shelf. And that's, just the, that's futuristic look where this is going to happen. You're going to be watching these witnesses on the news and people getting slaughtered and different things. Um, so we have, to, we have to make these kind of decisions. Another example is Revelation 9.3. And this is talking about the plague. This was uh, trumpet number five. Trumpet number five blows and the plague of the locusts come. From the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Verse 7, that's began with 9.3, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails some people reading this they're thinking okay this is going to happen in the future how would this what would this look like what are what does that mean and the conclusion is helicopters the the john is describing helicopters because this is a great battle and it's modern day warfare and you know the chopper makes these kind of like loud noises and it it has weaponry that it can shoot at people and bombs that it can throw and so forth like that so there is some people would say well it's just 
plain as the hair on your head. Talking about helicopters here. So we just have to work our way through these kind of things and find out are locusts really uh, helicopters. So so how consistent can we be with these different um, interpretations? Because the book, here's what we have to remember as I close. The book was written, um, Matt Chandler said this, and I really like it. The book is written for us, not to us. The book was written to the seven churches and was given to John. Now, we can glean from it absolutely, but it was written to them. So, my approach is to say, okay, if it's written to them, what would they understand? How would these words comfort the original recipients? They wouldn't know anything about helicopters. They wouldn't know anything about the Pope at this time. So, what, what is it that God is speaking to them, preparing them for? Now, we're going to glean from it, but that is the approach that I, will ta- that I will take as we look at this book. My approach is what um, you would call eclectic. And actually, I'm realizing I forgot the fourth interpretation. The fourth method is idealism. So idealism says that it's pretty much all symbolic, except for the new heavens and the earth. It's pretty much all symbolic. You can't attach these descriptions to actual figures, to actual years, to actual places. You know, the the great battle where it's going to be so fierce and bloody that literally there's going to be a battlefield and the blood will come up to the horse's reins. So you just can't, just can't take that literally. It's figurative. And we can learn a lot and be comforted uh, and be warned about the persecution and what's happening in the battle and the things to come. But it is to be taken literally. My approach is more eclectic. I think that all of these things have something to offer us. And God has revealed things about the past. He is revealing things about the present. And we can't avoid talk about the future in this book. So we will look at all of that. We're going to hold the fort. We're going to take a humble position. I'm not going to get up here and beat the pulpit about what things mean and don't mean unless I'm sure about it. But I am confident that we will come away with a good understanding of the meaning in this book. We will hear from God as He is meant to be heard. I will suspect this, this book will step on our toes and cause some pain. But I also expect the loving arms of Christ through the comfort of the Holy Spirit to bring us right back in line. It's going to be okay because Christ is in charge. And as we plod, Christ is always knocking on the door and will fellowship with anyone who cares to open it. May God bless the preaching of His Word.